Okay, hi everyone. Um, thank you all for joining. Um, we're so, so pleased to have Rabbi Dr. Ariel Evan May is joining, uh, joining us at Drisha today uh, to present this shiur to all of you. Um, I should, by the way, introduce myself. My name is uh, Ravanit Leasarna, and I am the Associate Director of Education and the Director of High School Programs at Drisha. Um, I'm, I'm new, so I'm very excited to be a part of this amazing community and organization. To, to the point, um, so welcome to Seek Me and Live Hasidism and the Spiritual Journey. Um, Rabbi Me has joined the faculty of Stanford University in 2017 as an assistant professor in the Department of Religious Studies. He serves as the rabbi in resident at Atik, which is the Jewish Maker Institute. They make really cool things. You should check them out. Um, and formerly, he was the director of Jewish studies and visiting assistant professor of modern Jewish thought at Hebrew College in Newton, Massachusetts, where he incidentally lived in my parents' house. Um, <laughs> Mays holds a PhD in Jewish studies from Harvard, rabbinic ordination from Beit Midrash Harel, and he is the author of a number of different books and volumes um, and he has a forthcoming book examining the relationship between spirituality and law from the dawn of Hasidism to the eve of the 20th century which you should keep your eyes out for without further ado very nice thank you Rabanit Leah um, the book is not yet written but I will um, accept that as a blessing that it should get written and at the right time Wonderful. To new faces, so nice to see you. To those who were here last week, wonderful to be back together again. Um, just as a way of sinking back into this material and entering into the headspace once more, I wanted to briefly recap the things that we looked at last week. Um, the theme of this three-part shiur, and in some ways I think the theme at least of my religious life, and I hope also of yours, is the importance of spiritual journeys. Um, next week we'll be talking about the people that we walk along the way together with, our fellow travelers and the importance that they play in our own spiritual journeys. This week we're going to be talking about internal spiritual journeys that we take largely as individuals, but not only as individuals. Now, by journeys, I mean tefillah, prayer, the journey to learn, to understand, to grasp Torah, to be able to, to, to refine and transform our midot, our ethical characteristics and the way that we walk in the world, our theology, our performance in the mitzvot. All of these are seen not as yes or no, or as check marks to be put into a little box, but as open conversations and journeys that unfold across the years. They are infinite, they are nonlinear, and they're hard. And that is part and parcel of the package. And the argument that I'm putting forward, or perhaps the suggestion that I'm hoping will come forth from the texts, is that one of the great lessons of spiritual journeys within Hasidism is that it's a commitment to the transformative quality of process rather than the fixation upon a goal. This is one Hasidic rereading of the, um, of the Mishnah that someone is not supposed to create their tefillah as keva. And you don't want to create keva out of your tefillah. Now that's keva meaning something like uh, um, 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 stationary or, um, or um, fixed at a particular point. Now we all or often use a standard liturgy. The liturgy has been fixed. The way that the Hasidic masters understand that is every prayer service is different because you are different. 
we're never the same when we open the sea door. And that's true in the morning, that's true in the evening, that's true in the evening, and certainly that's true across the years. But there's another important Hasidic rereading of this, and that is you can't have your mind fixed only upon a particular goal. When I dive in today, it's gotta be this, and the experience is going to be that. Sometimes that works, and sometimes it doesn't. And part of the experience of tefillah is the willingness to walk along that journey, even though the goal may change. And even though the goal may not be what you thought it was going to be. The goal of tefillah is to be present in that experience with commitment and with courage. And that's true of every mitzvah. So the text that we looked at last week, um, one of them was this marvelous passage from the Zohar about the angels and the human beings, both on the search for God. The angels think God must be below. The, the human beings think that God must be on high until both must say, Baruch kabod Adonai mim komo, because no one has any idea where God is. We just say, blessed is the glory of God from when, whenever it comes. And Rabbi Yehuda then says, well, how is it that we come to know God? And he quotes the verse from, Mish, uh, from the book of Proverbs, that God is known in the gates of the city. And he applies that to the gates of the imagination. Lesha'er in Rabbinic Hebrew um, can mean to, um, to measure. It can also mean to imagine or to guess. In modern Hebrew, it means to estimate or to assume. But in Rabbinic Hebrew, it has the power of the imagination together with it. And so Rabbi Yehuda, this medieval sage in the, in the imagination of the Zohar, says uh, as follows, God may be known to the extent that you open up the heart gates of the imagination. And that's the way that we come to know the divine. It's not through any kind of certain proposition but through the power of witnessing in our own lives. And then we looked at a 16th century commentary on that that has a line that if you remember nothing else from this, this is a line worth committing to memory. Kol mishtokek lo yanuach milevakesh. One who yearns for something won't give up on the quest, even though by definition, you'll never arrive at the destination. And he gives us the example, the heavenly bodies by which he means the sun and the moon and all the other things in the sky that turn around and around. They never get where they're going. They just move in circles, whether that's rotational orbits, rotations or orbits. And he says, that's exactly what our religious lives are gonna be. You're never gonna daven and feel like, yeah, that was it. I accomplished everything I needed to accomplish. You're never gonna be learning Gemara and say, all right, I'm good, I can put it back on the shelf. I think I've learned everything that the Talmud has to teach me. And in fact, the more you go into it, the more you realize that you've only just begun. But kol hamishtokek, lo yanuach, milevakesh. The more you develop that kind of journey, the more you are driven forward on that quest. And then we looked at this parable from the Baal Shem Tov, where he quotes this medieval bon mot, or this medieval truism that he gets not directly, but indirectly from Socrates, tachlit de lo neda, the ultimate aim of all knowledge is not to know. And he gives two examples of not knowing. There's the person who tries to go to see the king, sees that the door is locked and then goes home. 
that person does not know the king. There's another, which when they see that the door is locked, they hop over the wall, they poke around, they walk throughout the grounds, they see the gardens, they see the king's armory, they see the mess hall, they see the otsar, they see the, uh, the treasure hall. And even though they haven't seen the king, that kind of unknowing is very different than the person who just goes home. So rather, rather than a kind of indolent ignorance, there's a studied unknowing that comes on the quest. The sources that we're going to look at today, um, the source sheet should easily be available um, either in the chat bar. I'm going to share my screen in just a moment. And, um, and I think it's available to anyone who's watching on Facebook also. Um, we're going to, just a moment, I can figure this out. Come on. Excellent. Every time Zoom works, I'm amazed. Good. So the sources should appear on your screen magically in whatever format you would like. Um, the first text is from Rabbi Levi Yitzchak of Berdichev. It's going to lift up that verse that we looked at last week as a kind of leitmotif for the spiritual season of Elul. Achat sha'alti me'et Adonai ota avakesh. Um, one thing I have asked of God, one thing I am searching for, that is what I am on the quest to find. The second text is from Rabbi Binyamin of Zalash. It's a text that I think more explicitly than any other Hasidic source that I've ever seen, puts stock in the transformative dimension of the process of tefillah, rather than in some, whatever it might be, um, rather than some imagined goal. The third from Rabbi Menachem Nachum of Chernobyl, the Me'or Enaim, underscores the infinite quest to come to understand something of the Torah, where he describes it as a, um, as a journey into the silent, illuminated recesses, that sort of throbbing heart within the letters of the Torah. The farther you go into that, the more you, lear the more you have learned, but also the more that you realize that you have only just begun. They say this in the name of the Rebbe of Kotsk. They say it in the name of a lot of people. Why is it that the Talmud always begins on Daf Bet and not Daf Aleph? Because you've never really begun. So it starts on page two to pull the rug out from under you. Um, the Talmud is a kind of document or a kind of discourse that has no beginning or end. And you can say exactly the same thing about the Torah, which incidentally begins with a bet as well. And the last text also from Rabbi Menachem Nachum of Chernobyl um, underscores the degree to which this journey is at times uncomfortable and is it at times nonlinear. We have moments of elation, we have moments of triumph, and we have also many moments of frustration, many moments of feeling like we are not moving forward, many moments of feeling like we are moving backward. One of the great themes of Rabbi Menachem Nachum of Chernobyl's book, The Mo'ari Nine, is that when you take a step backward, it is not a step backward in the sense of losing ground. When you move 
from a higher place to a lower place or moving out of the um, vertical metaphor, when you move from a place of expansive consciousness to a place of constricted consciousness, um, or an example that happens all the time in my own life, when I'm having this amazing experience in tefillah, and then all of a sudden my mind wanders just a little bit, and instead of saying ashray, I'm now saying aleinu, and everything is falling apart, and I don't know where I am. How can those things come right after one another? Because that's the way it works. The way it works is that human beings are dynamic. And that dynamism is not a bug, it's a feature. That dynamism is part and parcel of what it means to be a human being on a journey. Um, all right, so I'm gonna zoom us back to the first text. Um, I'm going to pause right now and just see, does anyone have any questions? I've sort of thrown out a lot of ideas and information or anything that I would I can clarify. Um, please feel free to ping me at any time or Rabinate Leah. You can also help facilitate this. Um, if you have any questions, if something is not clear, if there's a point that you want to hear drawn out um, or drilled into, please just let me know. So the Kedushat Levi, Rabbi Levi Yitzchak of Berdichev, a famed Hasidic leader for his love of the Jewish people, there's an entire sort of folk culture built around him. And probably in the late 19th century, he is one of the most famous legendary figures in the Jewish imagination. Um, there are stories about him in all sorts of literature from Hasidic Maiselech all the way to stories in... Um, um, in secular literatures and in Yiddish literatures and in Hebrew literatures. Um, there's something about him that endures within the Jewish imagination. He's a prominent figure even in people like Shevas all the way up until the second half of the 20th century. Um, Levi Yitzchak Berdichev is also a person with a deep spiritual sensibility. He was evidently a somewhat excitable person. Um, he's thrown out of a city um, when he moves there by the Misnagdim. Um, not because of what he preached from the Bima, but from the way that he davened, evidently. He davened with such enthusiasm um, that people felt it was not becoming of someone with his level of erudition. He was a, uh, um, he was a Rav together with being a Rebbe, um, which is to say that he had a deep, deep Talmudic um, education. And one of the few documents that we have from his own hand is a chuva that he wrote, um, is a rabbinic responsum that he wrote. Um, so he was very much a part of that world, but he seems to have been fundamentally transformed with his in his uh, meeting of Hasidism. And one of the things that you might say that he gets from this world is a clear understanding of the infinite transformative possibility of the human being um, and the infinite in two senses, infinite in the sense of there's always more to go and infinite in the sense of so much can be accomplished. So he, he says as follows, this is from Parashat Shemot, and it's, um, it's really a drasha on Ehiyeh Asher Ehiyeh. You don't see that here um, because I've simply given you a, a, a particular um, uh, sampling from it, but the verse that starts this drasha is God as, um, you might say, I am the becoming that shall become, or something like that. That's how he is going to understand that verse um, in the context of the way in which we take part in that same constant process of self-formation. God is never one stagnant thing in the same way that the human being is not one 
stagnant thing. So I'm reading here, you have it in English, you have it in Hebrew. Dihine hatzadik ha'ovedet Hashem yitbarach tzarich shieda v'choyom uvocho v'am shimasig eze hasaga shiesh od hasaga madregala ba'ale meze she'eno mesig ota adayin v'she'en hasaga zu shemesig v'tachlit ha'shlemut Sheda b'chopam she'adayin chaser she'eno masig. Kshayavo gam la saga zu yida shiyesh od hasaga lefanai belifanim lefanim vidavar ze en lo sof. So the tzaddik is someone who understands the following at each and every moment whenever one has attained something rather than, as one says, resting upon, upon one's laurels, instead of reaching the summit of that experience or that attainment and looking back at everything that has one has accomplished or looking down at one's feet and thinking about the triumph that one feels, instead you look to the next vista. These are rolling hills rather than a single mountain. And when you do that, you have to keep up. I'm an avid biker, so this speaks to my heart. When you do that, you have to keep up a good momentum and you have to know exactly where you are, but you also have to keep one eye trained on the road ahead of you to be able to know where it is that you're going. So you recognize where you are. I think texts like this don't mean to underscore that um, one's attainments are meaningless. On the contrary, they're so meaningful because they're a footstep along this long journey. They are a single footstep within this braided constellation of attainments or braided constellation of, uh, of moments of achievement that move you forward. And you can't sit there and sink there and get stuck there, but neither can you can you deny that you've attained that. And I think that that's exactly the balance that texts like this want us to strike. Because otherwise, looking forward creates a kind of paralysis. And we talked about this last time, that when you open up the prayer service and you look at shachari, which is like, you know, dozens of pages long, and there's this and there's that, and you have to say it all, it can be kind of overwhelming. Um, I have this experience every time I pull a Gemara off the shelf, and I see all the other volumes. And even if I'm pulling off a Gemara that I actually know, I see all the other volumes, some of which I've never even opened. And I just get sort of hit over the head with this. But the point is, is that you have the presence of mind to see what it is that you have accomplished. And then from there, with firm feet planted in that, you look forward boldly to the next hasaga without sinking into a kind of complacency. It's an ever higher and ever deeper and ever more full more rich, more textured experience that lies on the other side of that next journey. Vidavarze enlo sof. This is a kind of journey that has no end. Now it's hard not to hear en sof, enlo sof, en sof, a name for God. There's actually another there's another Hasidic text from the Magid of Mezers that makes that, this, the Kedusha Slevi's teacher, um, who makes that totally explicit. He says that when you think you're something, that's all you are. But when you think you're nothing, you are Ein Sof. 
you are limitless. Now again, that is not meant to, um, to deny what one has actually accomplished, nor is it to deny one's own particular cluster of character traits that make us as into a unique human being. But on the other hand, it is meant to puncture a hole in that kind of inflated sense of accomplishment that can come from walking along the spiritual path. Because if you allow yourself to feel a complacency, then that's it. That's the end. Further growth has been curtailed. And we'll see next week um, that key to that journey for many Hasidic masters, sometimes it's meeting a teacher. You think you got something until you see someone else. Sometimes the teacher is the one who opens your mind to a new vista, a new way of thinking, or perhaps just a new level of thinking. But oftentimes it's your friends, it's your fellow travelers, it's the people with whom you walk the path. This is the Baal Shem Tov's teachings on Lo Tov Heyot Adam Levado. Um, it's not good to be alone. Um, why? Because people who are alone tend to think they're a tzaddik. That's what the Baal Shem Tov says. That when you think, when you exist only in isolation without being in relationship with other people, it's easy to come to an inflated sense of self-worth. Now, he doesn't quite say this. In my own experience, I would also argue that the opposite is the case. Um, and as I think about what that means in the time of Zoom and what that means in the time in which so many of us have lost our immediate sort of human, um, human communities, um, at least in a physical sense, it's also very difficult to keep moving forward when you don't have those friends and fellow travelers who show you what it can be to daven, who show you what it can be to learn. And Zoom is great, but it doesn't have that same quality. Now, one other point about this. I want you to, um, to think about the fact that this text, and many like it, um, define the tzaddik as the person who is aware of this modality. So if I had to sort of like wake you up in the middle of the night and ask you, how does the tzaddik, uh, who, how does the, um, the Kedusha Slevi define a tzaddik? Someone who's on the move at all times always growing. It's a very different model than someone who is qualitatively different, who was born into the office of being a tzaddik, someone who is unique either in their spiritual or genetic makeup or some combination of the two. And it's important to remember that especially in the texts from the 18th and early 19th century, that understanding of the tzaddik of something that is born as opposed to something that is forged is foreign to these texts. The Balatanya is really the first one, Rabbi Shnur Zalman of Liadi, who puts forward that idea. And there are many, many people around the Magid's table who simply do not agree with him. That Tzadik, for them, is someone who is a kind of spiritual hero, who moves forward and who is constantly undergoing these kinds of spiritual journeys. Not someone who sits only on a lofty, high level. Um, okay, so the text continues. This is the mitzvah mina muvchar. This is the greatest level. This is the most choice dimension or mode of serving God. 
ומקווה ומשתוקק לעלות במדרגה למעלה מזו. Remember that, that text that we looked at last week? Kol mishtokeach lo yanuach milevakesh. Here again, someone who has this chuka, this kind of desire, this kind of longing to go up a level. This is the highest service of God. Or this is the, you might say, this is the most powerful way of serving the divine, the greatest mode of, of worship. Um, and as my teacher, Arthur Green, always reminds me and his students, um, whenever Hasidic sources use the vertical metaphor, feel free to turn it on its side and think about things in terms of inner versus outer. There's always a deeper interior dimension. To say it in slightly uh, plainer terms, you can always go deeper. Whether it's a text that you're reading, a conversation that you're having, a view that you're looking at, a person with whom you're even sitting just in silence, you can always go deeper. Levi Yitzchak continues. Vishamati gamken b'shem atzadik yechil nechol mizlachov. Um, who is a, another fellow traveler within the early Hasidic world, um, a disciple of the Baal Shem Tov, but not one that followed the school of the Magid, um, who in some sense is sort of like a, uh, um, a parallel to, uh, to, the, to, the, to the circle that forms around the Magid in Rabbi Dov Berfret Friedman in Mezrich in the 1760s. Um, so all you need to know is that he's another um, sort of a cousin of many of the uh, spiritual cousin of many of the Hasidic masters that are perhaps better known. Um, so he he gives the following interpretation of the verse: Achat sha'alti me'et Adonai ota avakesh lachazot benoam Hashem ulevaker behechalo. As we as we talked about last week, this from Psalm 27, which is the center point of one of the central psalms of this holiday season. One thing have I asked of God, right? One thing do I seek to gaze upon the pleasantness of the divine. So here, here's the beginning of the perush. Here's the beginning of the, of the explanation. Ota avakesh, tamid. I will seek it always, meaning she'eda. Sheyesh madrega limala mizu, that I am perennially conscious. I'm constantly aware of the fact that there is a higher level, a deeper level. Bigvoa me'al gvoim, and this goes up until the heavens or into the deep, deepest dimensions of the human heart, ladder by ladder, step by step. Ve'abakesh, tamid, lachazot benoam adonai, ulahasig gam madrega zu. I I stride forward on this quest, avakesh tamid, this eternal quest, to gaze upon God's pleasantness and to grasp, to attain, to reach for a higher level. And once I get there, when I finally get there, avakesh od, I keep seeking. She'en leze sof adkan devarath. And this process has no end. The bakasha, 
is a quest, not a question, right? Questions have answers, quests unfold. So how does he read the verse? One thing have I asked of God, I ask this one thing, I want to be able to read a page of Talmud. And I finally get there. And to do that probably takes years of work. And then I realize there are these columns on either side. And, and I'm going to do it. I can learn Rashi. And then I have to learn a whole new alphabet, but I get there. And then I realize that some of Rashi's friends and relatives and countrymen didn't agree with what he had to say. And I look at the Tosafot on the outside. And now what had been a two-way conversation between the Mishnah and the Talmudic sages that are commenting on it, flashing forward to Rashi in the 11th century and the Tosafot in the 12th and 13th century now becomes a four-way conversation. And then I realized that I just bought this new edition of the Gemara that has a bunch of other commentators who live in the back. And the texts begin to pop in all sorts of directions and the hyperlinks, as it were, lift off the page. And then I go talk to my teacher and I realize I haven't even begun to understand. The same thing happens in tefillah. First I learn how to read the alphabet, then I learn the nusach, the way in which this is intoned and recited in the synagogue. And then I learn perhaps some of the theological underpinnings. And then I understand something about the way in which the liturgy comes together, as a, perhaps as an anthology or a historical process and this and that. And then I finally get a sense of this arc that goes from the very beginning of prayer to the very end of prayer. And then I go watch someone, Davin, and I realize I haven't even begun. But I, it's not like I'm starting back at square zero. But it's the realization that those ever-widening intellectual and spiritual horizons teach us about the infinite capacity of the human being to become like God in that just as God has no end, so too does the human capacity for transformation and growth have no end. Um, okay, um, are there any questions, comments before we continue? Um. I had a comment. I, I don't know, my camera's not working right now. It's not on the picture, but um, uh, and in that stuff you were just talking about, um, where there's no end in Losof. I mean, because you were using very concrete examples. At first, you have to learn Gemara, and then you have to learn all the commentators, etc. But I mean, for me, it's much more. Um, <clears throat> it made me think much more of um, you know Rambam at the end of Mora Nevochim talking about. Um, the people like way outside who don't even know there's a palace and then sort of like moving in further and further like in going more internal into the palace like that progression what seems to be what he was talking about yeah that's such a beautiful point so um 
remind me of your name. I think it flashed. Mara Schifrin. Mara. Yeah, thank you, Mara. Such a such an important point. So that text, um, it's the famous parable in the fifty first. 51st chapter of the third part of the guide, which was actually on last week's um, source sheet, but we didn't have a chance to talk about it, um, where Maimonides describes all the different people in the world um, as being denizens of a sacred city um, with a king at the center. And they are the people who are really far away. And then there are the people who are just, and are like walking in the opposite direction. And then there are the people who are outside and don't really know that they're outside. And then there are the people who think that they are inside but they don't even know how far outside they are, right? Those are the people that just follow the law because they think that's what God wants. They don't actually think about the deeper principles of theology or philosophy. Um, they're committed only to a kind of what we would describe as orthopraxis. And then there are the people who have gotten a little bit farther. And then there are the people who've gotten all the way in. And those are the perfectly trained philosopher, um, philosophers and prophets um, who actually have some sort of an attainment of of the divine, even if theirs is only partial, except for Moses, Miriam, and Aaron, who do attain something greater, except that because it's so great, it melts their mind. And that's why the Torah describes them as dying with a kiss. Um, so I think you're exactly right. The philosophical quest is led in this, uh, leads us in this direction. Also, um, it, whether this is an intellectual or a, um, or a concrete, um, or a concrete journey, I think the impulse is exactly the same. And I think that the parable that Rambam gives us, um, I think is super, super helpful and super, super important. Um, my inclination is to expand it, not just to the world of the intellect, which I think is paramount and very important, but to remember that that is a way of thinking about so many different parts of our life. Everything from the creative purpose to like right now, I'm trying to turn my backyard into a farm. And every time I think I know something, the plants teach me that I don't actually know anything. Um, or the rats teach me that I don't know anything because they're much smarter than me. Or something will teach me that I just, I haven't even begun yet. And yet I can, in that in that context, really taste of the fruits of where I've come to, um, while also knowing that I have so much more, um, so much more to see. Good, I see that there's a, a hand up and I can't see your name, I'm sorry. This is Beth. Beth, great. I, I wanted to comment that I think there's another way to go to higher and higher levels that's also going in and in and in. Mm -hmm. And that is through meditative practices, even something as simple as following the breath and finding all the places where the breath is in the body and seeing if there are places of constriction and sitting with it and going in and in and in. I think in a way we've got a king's palace that's available for inspection just with our own physical being. And that's available to us even if we can't read Gemara or don't know how to daven or, you know, have, have very little acquaintance with uh, the published literature of our people. So beautiful, but thank you very much. Um, the the Hasidic sources um, take this verse in Jeremiah, the verse in Jeremiah, um, which is the people protesting that God will not destroy the temple. They say, 
Hechal Hashem Hema. This is God's temple. This is God's temple. This is what they, they say in response to Jeremiah's castigation. Um, the Hasidic sources, as they often do, truncate and creatively reapply that verse. And Hechal Hashem Hema, they are God's temple, or it is God's temple, is reapplied in Hasidic sources, not to the physical building, but to the people. Um, and there is this sense that the people, the person, is a mikdash, is a heichal, is a temple, is a sacred space. And therefore, um, the kind of, maybe you would say, somatic knowledge that one develops through that embodied sensibility is part and parcel of Hasidism. Um, that's why it has such a robust material culture. That's why it has such a bus, robust way of thinking about serving God through eating and drinking and dance and through other kinds of embodied activity. Right, learning is great. It's really important to learn Torah. But one of the things that you find in Hasidut is, um, as opposed to perspectives which close off doors, and saying that's not, that's not sacred, that's not sacred, the Bavli, like the Gemara, that's really sacred, which is something that you find in the 19th century. What Hasidut, it, it takes the opposite tack. That too is sacred, right? That too is sacred. That too is a spiritual opportunity. And when Martin Buber says that Hasidism divides between the holy and the not yet holy, he's right. In a certain sense, he's really, really correct in his reading of Hasidic sources whether that is language, right? It's not just Hebrew that is sacred, it's any kind of human language. It's not just prayer, but any kind of activity that is performed with that kind of devotional intensity, whether it's meditation, or whether that is contemplative eating, or whether it's ordinary conversations, or walking, or all of these other things, which by the way, are described explicitly in Hasidic literature as not only ways of serving God, but ways of coming to an understanding of divinity. It's not simply what happens in the books. Um, there's actually this very funny, if somewhat odd story of an early Hasidic um, student who is, um, he's visiting a town and he does what any good Hasid does. He goes to the mikveh, the, the ritual bath as soon as he gets to the town. And when he puts his backpack in the foyer and hangs it up, um, the people of the town come look through it to see if he has any good Hasidic teachings. Um, and he comes back after having immersed himself and says, what are you guys looking for? And they sort of sheepishly say, like, we're looking for the books. Like, we assume that, you know, in the days before social media, this is how ideas get from one place to another. Um, and he says, what are you talking about? I get that for you, books and, um, books and students are very different things. But for the Hasidim, the students are the books. And I've got the teachings. And they're implanted in me. Then we can have a conversation. Okay. Thank you, Beth, for such an, uh, an important comment. Um, okay, good. Let's continue. So the, the teaching from the Kedusha Slavi wraps up, at least in the presentation here, as follows, with the following mashal, or the following example or parable given from the Val Shem Tov. Um, from a verse which speaks about God leading us on almut, or probably best described as um, uh, eternal. So the Baal Shem Tov here I'm reading at the middle of the screen, the bottom paragraph, Mashal la'av ha'malamed l'beno ha'katan 
Lelech. Um, the example of a parent teaching a kid to walk. When the child walks two or three steps toward the parent, the parent steps back just a little bit so that the kid will stretch. And as the kid can now walk a little bit farther, the parent steps back farther and farther. God is the hidden God. Um, in the same way that the parent steps back, the divine steps back, as it were. When a tzaddik serves the divine, the tzaddik, as we said, is the person who understands that they're not there in all of the fullness of their practice as of yet. Tells um, uh, t- the study tells himself that he is still distant from the ultimate goal. Kadei sheit karev atzadik yoter. But this is an order that the tzadik, this person with that kind of spiritual audacity and courage, can keep walking forward. And so this is why God is described uh, as inhagenu um, almut, which if you squish the words. Together, um, okay, not our point for right now. Um, God is hidden and therefore is referred to as him and not you, right? It's a third person as opposed to a second person reference in the book of Psalms. Um, but I think the more important point here is the next one that um, that God leads us on eternally can be read homiletically um, as related to the word alumaya, um, which means a child. So how does the Baal Shem Tov read the verse? God leads us onward, brackets, as a parent walks before the child, always one step beyond and never so far as to cause the, sit, the kid to sit down and have a sit-down strike. Like that's exactly the kind of balance that one strikes as a parent. And as a teacher, it's the same thing. You're not doing your student any service to hand them things, nor are you doing them any service to hand them a reading list with 300 books and say, come back to me when you finish these. You strike the middle ground. You help them stretch such that it is uncomfortable, but not dispiriting, such that it is difficult, but not crushing, such that it allows them to stretch and in doing so find their own wings, such that when you walk to the, when you, when you move out of the way, they keep walking forward. It's true of children. It's true of students. And it's certainly true in our relationship with the divine. And that's a kind of, you might say, childlike approach as opposed to a childish approach, always looking with a kind of expansive, excited awareness at the new things that one can accomplish. There's a sign um, on the wall at the Bay Area Discovery Museum that we used to take our kids to all the time that says, 
Um, if your child is doing something for the hundredth time, it means that she or he is still learning from it. And I've always loved that sign, um, especially when I'm in the morning and trying to get the kids out of the house and they got to put on their shoes and this and that. If, if it takes a little while, and even if they're doing it again and again and again, that child is still learning from it because there's something deeper to find out there. And it's true in the way in which we approach tefillah. It's true in the, which, the way in which we re, um, relate to the Gemara. It's true in the way that we relate to our body. It's true in the way that we relate to our natural world. It's certainly true in the way that we relate to close friendships or spouses, anyone with whom we have a real sort of soulful connection. That knowing of that other person will always be incomplete. And that does not in any way diminish the power. Okay, so the next text, as I said, is one of the most, I would say, poignant examples um, of the commitment to process that you find in Hasidic sources. And it's one that I often think about in this time of year, um, both because of the theme of Elul and also because it draws as its, um, as its diving board into the world of homiletics, um, uh, a quote from, from the Slichot that we recite. Um, you will recite in the near future, or if you are Sephardic or already reciting, although I don't think this one is in Sephardic Slichot. So for the Ashkenazim, we'll recite. Um, and it picks up on this interesting um, grammatical formulation. I'm here, um, should be front and center, but it's the second source. You can ignore the first, letter, first word, Adam. Um, that's just a, uh, a continuation of a line, but I'm picking up from here, Vezei She'anu Mevakshim. Um, and this is what we ask for. This is what we recite in the Slichot liturgy. He might say, lanu bivaka shatenu. Um, which I think the shot of this is something like, present us with our request. Present us with what, what we're asking for. He might say, lanzi is to bring forth something. He might say, like, make what we're asking for be known. Abet hamikdash. Um... Um, sovereignty, a, uh, a stable world, all the things, personal transformation, kapara, atonement, uh, um, um, forgiveness to ourselves and to others, all the things that we ask for um, during the slichot, the courage to be able to face God on the high holidays, like all of these things. Um, that's what we were asking. Please present us with that. Now watch how the text, in, in some ways this works well in English, takes that and in some ways, turns that on its head, but retains something of the original. So the author, Binyamin Zalash, then connects this to the verse in Dvarim, Uvi Kashtem, etc., etc., right? Uvi Kashtem Isham Umatsata, that you should seek God from wherever you are, and then you shall find God. Okay, so again, Hold on to, if there are two Hebrew words that you need to have at the end of this, one of them is very easy, darash, grisha, to seek out, to find, to look for, and the other, which is bakasha, um, which is a synonymic root in biblical Hebrew, but they have slightly different resonances. Lidrosh is to go, to interpret, to find out. Uh, levakesh means to seek out or to request, and it has those two connotations. Um, lidrosh can mean to request, but it's it's a secondary meaning. So. Levakesh here means to, um, really means to seek out and to try to find. So 
he won't read this all um, inside, he, he picks up on this strange double formulation here in the second of the Hebrew paragraphs. Um, it doesn't say, he might say lanu baka shatenu, um, make known our request, but be vaka shatenu. With our request, probably is the shot. Um, but he's going to change it slightly. So in the third Hebrew line of that second paragraph, why does it say be vakashatenu with our request? He's going to say it's not with our request, but in our request or in our search. Sheakadosh Baruchu Yimsa Imanu. Right, Lihimatse, Yimatsa, Yimsa. You can hear the root. Imanu Bishat Habakasha. What are we asking for? that God be present with us in the moment of the request. Hainu, sheye puma hechal havaya adni. That we ask that God be present in artfila, meaning what? That our mouth, artfila, becomes a source of holiness, that literally the mouth becomes a temple for the eternity of being. So himatse lanu be vakashatenu means im habakesha shalanu. May God not present us with our request, but be present in our request. May the act of standing before God and reciting the slichot, may that be transformative. Who knows what's going to happen on Rosh Hashanah, especially this year? Who knows what's going to happen on Yom Kippur? Who knows what's going to be in the future? But I'm not thinking about that. May this moment of slichot be transformative. Rather than seeking an answer, I seek God's presence. And Right, this is, in some ways, I think, um, connected to this famous teaching from the Baal Shem Tov about these two different versions of a Mishnah in Pirkei Avot. Um, one version says, um, serve God, um, shalom almanat lekabel pras. Don't serve God in order to receive a reward. But there's another version of that Mishnah that was popular in Eastern Europe that was, serve God in order that you don't receive a reward. And the Baal Shem Tov says, yeah, those are both true. Good Hasidic fashion, good rabbinic fashion. But one level is higher than the other. Right? The first level, the opening bid, is that you realize that it's not about the reward. And when the reward comes, like, you say thank you. You don't, it's, you know, you don't immediately try and figure out, is it exactly according to what I did? But you say thank you, but it's not that you've ignored it. And then there's a higher level, which is almanat shalolika belpras. Not only are you not interested in the reward, when it, when it comes your way, you just look right past it. Because the notion of divine reward and punishment is something that in Hasidic understandings um, is meant to be totally transcended 
It's not about reward and punishment. It's not even about the nice modern way we have of thinking about consequence and action. It's not that. It's about intimacy with God and intimacy with other human beings. Like that's what it's all about. And there's a tradition in Chabad um, that one of the, um, one of the descendants of Rabbi Shner Zalman of Liadi walked into his office once um, and saw him sitting at his desk with his hands on his head. Um, and I think the word that's used to describe is sort of like in this um, astounding state, wondrous state of enrapturement. And he's saying, evidently to God, ich will nicht dein Eulam haba. I don't want your world to come. Ich will nicht dein Gan Eden. I don't even want your Gan Eden. Ich will nur Eich allein. Although probably it's do allein. I just want you. I don't want your Olam Hava, God. I don't want your Gan Eden. I don't want any of those other nice things that we, that we talk about, which are lower forms of what it means to be close to God. I want to step into your presence. I want you to be present in that quest. Um, this text from Menachem Nachum, you can work through, of Chernobyl, you can work through on your own, stepping into the sort of infinite pool of divine illumination that you find within the Torah. Um, it's a fascinating, it's a beautiful text. This is why he calls, quotes a tradition from the Baal Shem Tov, that we say Torah Hashem Tamima, um, God's Torah is um, perfect and innocent in that very few people have ever gotten to its deepest levels. It's a kind of untrammeled place that you go into and you find your own Torah, which is yours and no one else has made it for you. Um, but I don't want to leave without at least briefly discussing this next text from Menachem, Menachem of Chernobyl, which is the fourth. Um, which quotes this fundamental teaching from the Baal Shem Tov that rereading the book of Ezekiel, the book of Ezekiel describes the animals and the, the vision of the chariot as running around. They run toward the chariot, they run away from the chariot, they get close and then they get like overwhelmed and they run away. Um, and he, he reads this as follows, chayot are animals, chayot is vitality. Religious vitality moves in waves. It comes, here he says, Shabbat umistalek. It comes and it goes. And sometimes you don't even know how that happens or why that happens. In the long tefillah of Yom Kippur, that can happen many times. I'm feeling great and all of a sudden I get a caffeine headache. And then the Avodah service happens and it's great and then it's like nap time before Mincha and it's like, it's up and it's down and I don't know why. And he says, There are secrets of Torah in the up and the down for two reasons. One, this is like the fundament of which the entire Torah stands because nothing is static. Everything is always changing. That's definitional to the universe. Second of all, there's something there for you to learn when you go down from your level. So you're at a higher rung, which is amazing. That kind of eternal pleasure is no pleasure at all. And things move in waves. So you go down from your rung. There's a reason that you need to step back. There's a reason you need to get folded back in. Why? I don't know. 
It's different in every case. And that's exactly the point. For Hasidism means, who knows why you need to do something? Who knows why you've been taken out of that moment of Tvekut? You're in this moment of intense rapture and then something else happens? That's what you're meant to pay attention to. When you move from that moment of illumination, when you get frustrated with a creative enterprise, when the writing is not working, when the meditation is not working, when the gardening is not working, whatever it is that you're on this endless journey to be able to move forward in, you will get stuck and you will suffer from that moment. And what the Maori Naim is reminding us of is don't think that you're losing ground. That's part and parcel of the quest. That is part and parcel of the opportunity for growth. And when you go into that moment, you gather up those sparks. You gather up those seeds of future growth. You gather up those little fragments of divinity and you bring them with you to your next ascent or inward journey. So as our time grows, grows, grows to a close, I would say that I, I bless us all that in our commitment to process and processes, whatever those things might be, we remember our strengths and are continuously present to the things that we look forward to growing in in the month to come and in the year to come. Thank you very much. Thank you, Rabbi Mius, for joining us and for sharing your really beautiful Torah. There's so many pieces of this that are going to stick with me, particularly the uh, that image of um, Hastara, the hiddenness of God actually being an act of love in that it encourages the journey. Um, I found that very resonant to um, this time for me, maybe other people too. I also wanted to um, thank everyone who's been sharing their own Torah uh, in the chat while this has been going on. I've been finding that like very, very beautiful. Um, I don't know that you have any minutes for questions or things like that. Um, I know we're kind of at time here. Or even if there are any questions. Yeah, if there are any questions, I'm happy to stick around for a minute. Yeah, Shabi Poltzadik, Shimona Yakun. That's exactly it. The analogy that my martial arts teachers always used to give was the building of a samurai sword. Um, and I kind of alluded to this, that the fantastic strength of the samurai sword comes um, through this process in which you hammer it out over the anvil and then you fold it back on itself and then you hammer it out again and then you fold it back and then you hammer it out again. So the, the, the Mori Nine would be like, yeah, that's exactly it. You get hammered out. You have this great moment of being stretched to capacity of this kind of sacred service. And then you get folded back. And in doing so, you learn something new. And that kind of religious courage and religious is forged anew as it stretched once more. What a baking metaphor is to be had there too. Rabbi, when you were just talking about the, the swords being forged by taking the metal back and forth, it reminded me of how puff pastry is made. Mm -hmm. And puff pastry is so delicious and flaky and buttery. And it's the opposite of a sword in terms of, 
you know, its texture and all that. But it's the same idea of this perfection of the pastry as it goes back and forth. And like, if you, it's the same thing. If you try and rush it, you're not going to get the laminations. And if you don't have things in the right way, and if you try, and if you don't take the time to cool it down, and you don't take the time, and like, we all know that rough puff is great, but we also know that it's not exactly the same. And the way in which that that transformative dimension of the investment of time and energy really yields a different result. So whether that's the, you know, the carbon of the sword or the laminations of puff pastry, um, the kind of crispness of the experience at the end of it reflects all of that time that has been put into it. All right. Thank you all so much. I'm looking forward to next week. And um, I think my email address is pretty easy to find. Um, please be in touch in the intervening time if you have any questions. And we have lots of other programming going on. Miss Elul with Jerisha, there's a uh, take a class with me should you want to do that. Um, and other classes that have already started, but that um, can hop into or a few others that haven't started quite yet. Um, it's really an amazing lineup. And if you um, love what Rabbi Mies had to teach. You'll love some of the other offerings too. Um, so thank you all so much for joining and we hope to continue learning Torah with you. Thank you. Thanks, Rabbi Leah.